May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. It's good to be back. Thank you, Father Henry and, and Michael Davis, for filling in in my absence last week. You know, in some ways, I miss the times when I got to be a guest preacher because it always meant if you did well, people would miss you when you were gone. And if you did poorly, it didn't matter because you wouldn't be back the next Sunday. Uh, but you guys are going to have to deal with me for a couple months in a row now. So hopefully, let's get it, we'll try to get it together this morning a little bit. So if you have your insert with the scripture lessons for this morning, I want you to take a look at it with me. Uh, because I think the collect for the day is actually remarkably helpful, uh, as it often is as we open up the scriptures. It says this, God, you have prepared for those who love you such good things as surpass our understanding. Pour into our hearts such love towards you that we, loving you in all things and above all things, may obtain your promises which exceed all that we can desire. Now that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? God's promises are actually better than the things that we can desire. The season after Easter is marked by this kind of growing awareness that something fundamental has been changed by the resurrection, that the universe itself has been altered so that everything that comes after Easter is not the same as it might have been otherwise, and good things are now prepared for us that surpass even our own hopes. But that's not usually good enough for us humans as we are. We want to know what the future can be like. What should we expect from God? I think John of Patmos, who wrote the book of Revelation, is pointing us in that direction this morning toward the good things that we might not understand. But before we get into Revelation, we have to be sure we know how to read it. Like the Ethiopian eunuch who was met by Philip on the road in Acts, how can we understand what we're reading in the Bible with the right, without the right interpretive keys? Now, the fact is, to read Scripture takes a little bit of practice. Reading the Bible is less like reading an instruction manual for life than it is like that memorable scene from the great Will Ferrell classic, Talladega Nights, where Will Ferrell is trying to overcome his fears of becoming a big-time race car driver, and he's with his father, who's been pretty distant and lives pretty hard, and his dad gives him the keys to a fast old car that he's never seen before and tells him just to get in and drive. And then he puts a blindfold over his eyes, and it turns out there's a mountain lion in the back seat. To be honest... We don't know the Bible as well as we should. We talk about it more than we can study it. So when we come to a book like Revelation, it's a little bit like being given the keys to that car and the blindfold goes on and you hear the cougar growling in your ear. We get in a precarious position in a hurry, which is why sometimes when we read Revelation, we focus on the stuff that we can see and we can count. Who are these beasts and these dragons and to whom do they refer? And how important are all these numbers that John keeps citing? Or if you're in a particularly bad mood, who are these unrighteous? And how exactly long will they be burning in the lake of unquenchable fire? 
And how do they relate precisely to people that I know and dislike? <laughs> we need a kind of lens of interpretation that will let us understand what is written here to the first audience in such a way that it actually can be read by us as scripture. John is writing from an island prison on Patmos in the Aegean Sea, and he's trying to do two things. He's trying to encourage the church, and he's also trying to criticize the Roman Empire and warn Christians to be on their guard. So Revelation is a letter written to specific churches, but it's also an apocalypse. It's an unveiling, a disclosure of things that are happening behind the scenes of history. John is peeling back the curtain to tell the church what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen in the future. He wants to tell them to stay awake and to be ready, but not to live in fear because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. Now, Revelation is probably the book of the Bible that's been subjected to the most wide-ranging interpretation. John Calvin, who famously wrote a commentary on everything in the Bible, sometimes more than once, wrote no commentary on Revelation. This book has been read in the most literal and the most figurative ways, sometimes by the same people. It's been treated in some quarters as a precise description of the events that will lead to the end of time, and in others as just the fever dream of a dehydrated zealot alone with his thoughts for too long. But as really good readers of scripture, if that's what we're trying to be, we have to be able to hold more than one thought at the same time, which is a tricky thing. But Revelation asks us to do this quite often. Here's what I mean. John clearly sees the Roman Empire and the worship of the emperor as an existential threat to the church. A dangerous thing that Christians all over the known world had to deal with. And when he wrote down what he saw in the Revelation, he believed that that threat was so great that the conflict between the Roman Empire and the church would bring about the end of the world. And yet, here we are. His expectation was not fulfilled. The end did not arrive on schedule. Emperor worship, as the Romans practiced it, eventually went away. Christianity became the recognized religion of the state, and the official persecution of Christians ended. Now, that created a whole host of other problems, but John is writing from a particular place in history out to the whole universal church, from his small island to the whole world. And that prophetic vision that he had, expressed within the confines of his own history and culture, can't just be tossed out just because they didn't come to pass just as he expected. But in fact, we should regard them as a description of the kind of threat the church is facing always and everywhere. The apocalyptic vision is meant to encourage those who are suffering just in the same way that the beautiful picture of God's eternity that he writes about does the same. Now, we may not be suffering in exactly the same ways as Christians in the Roman Empire were suffering, but we're beset by challenges of our own. The church is still struggling to define herself and to resist the temptations that are all around us in the world. These powers and principalities have different names, but we are still beset 
by those who would happily turn the life-changing, world-shaking, death-defying gospel of Jesus into a gloss for their own favored brand of materialistic or consumerist or misogynistic death. These are the powers that we are always facing. So the beasts that John warned the churches about are still around today. And the end has not come yet. And that's why we read Revelation. So that we will not just lay down and accept the death-dealing ways of the powers around us. And so that the vision of final victory of God's perfect eternity will lift our hearts and our eyes to remind us that the life we live for God is leading to a glorious future. Okay, now that's a lot of vegetables at the beginning. Let's get to the proclamation bit. So if we're going to hold on to those things, more than one thing at the same time, let's open up Revelation. Because we have all wondered what the end of time is actually going to be like. When God brings history to a close, what does Scripture tell us to hope for? What can we expect? So starting at Revelation 21, verse 1, let's, let's take a deep dive. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. God, in the end, is going to be like a homeowner, completing a dramatic renovation, or maybe a church sprucing up a new building. He's going to complete a renovation of the whole old order of the world. Heaven and earth are not going to be destroyed, but remade. And the sea, that ancient and most foreboding characteristic of the natural world, the thing that everybody in certainly ancient Israel was most afraid of was the sea. That sea, the reminder of the wild chaos of the time before creation itself, will be no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. John barely has language for this. The vocabulary just doesn't really exist. God is sending the new Jerusalem dressed as a bride, just as the church is the bride of Christ, the heavenly city, and now God's promise to restore his glory before the eyes of the whole world is fulfilled. God's glory will dwell for eternity in this place. And the vision that Isaiah has in chapter 35, verse 10 is realized. The ransomed of the Lord shall return to Zion and come with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is one of those moments in scripture where I think it would be really helpful for there to be big, bold block letters. God intends to end death and sorrow. We should set off fireworks every time we read this in church. In God's eternity, tears and mourning and pain are not just enemies to be defeated. They are over. They are banished, cast out. The goodness of God's rule is so strong that in God's presence, these things which you and I know to be daily realities that we face, 
have been obliterated. And what's more, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By this light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The temple is a powerful symbol in our world. But every place of worship is only just a symbol. They point us to God, but in heaven there will be no need for a temple or a sanctuary or any kind of mediation at all because the Lord is so powerfully present. The immediacy of his presence is such that all symbols pass away because God is there. Think of the difference between conversation that you have across a telephone line, particularly in the bad old days when you had to actually dial a telephone. Think of the difference between the quality of that conversation and being face-to-face with your dearest loved ones. God is present in that way. His immediacy is such that every nation, every power and principality, every person will come streaming into the city just to be in that place where God is. And they will bring their glory as an offering and a sacrifice to God. And Jesus, the lamb who was slain, will bring his flock before the Lord. This is what heaven is like, to be in the immediate close presence of the one who made us. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now the temptation is to want to get out your sketch paper And to draw a geography of what heaven is like. Where is the throne and where is the river and where are the trees? And how many trees have 12 fruits? And where are they aligned in relationship to the river and to the throne? The important thing about heaven is not how it's laid out. Let me just take that burden off your mind. It's easy to want to diagram eternity. To try to describe the precise locations of all these things. But the most significant detail is that the nations of the world and the people of those nations will find healing in this place. There will be no more war or conflict or competition because God will bring sufficiency and peace and fullness and completion. And no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp nor sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now this is maybe the most amazing blessing in this long list, right? Like Moses in Genesis, the redeemed servants of God will see the face of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and they will be transformed by that encounter. They will be stamped 
with God's name and God's likeness. And they will rejoice to worship him, not in symbol, not in metaphor, but in truth. Eternity will satisfy that most basic longing that we all have. To be in the transcendent, almighty, all-encompassing presence of the Lord. It will be the culmination of all our hopes and all our strivings and the end of all of our dreams. So when you look at a beautiful sunset or you're reunited with a long-lost friend or a family member after many years, when you have a moment of pure, transcendental joy, heaven is like that, but with the volume turned up to 11. All of those things are signposts. They're reminders that tug on your heartstrings because they remind us that this world is not all there is. That this world is not all that it will be. And that we were made for something more than just a life of consumption and competition with one another. And that if we really believe that Revelation's description of the future is true, if we really believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, then we should start to live in this life as we will in the next. As if the immediate presence of God was the most significant thing imaginable. If God has done it for Jesus, God is going to do it for the whole world. The resurrection is a foretaste of the end of all things. And the whole creation is longing for that moment when the power of the resurrection and that new life sweeps through and makes all things as they should be. Revelation shows us that God's original intentions for the whole created universe have not been disrupted, despite what you and I might see on a daily basis, that God, in fact, is still at work in the world for good things. And we can imagine that new world that God is going to make only through this kind of rich symbolism and metaphor and imagery, because all our language about God's future, all our worship... Even these things is only pointing us in a direction towards the truth of the matter, which is overwhelming and awesome and more than you and I can probably wrap our brains around. Revelation imagines a future grounded in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, a future in which the rule of God and the love of God will do away with sin and death and a new creation will be brought to life. It is almost more than we should hope for. But when asked about his hopes for the future, the great missionary bishop and theologian Leslie Newbegin said this, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. So may it be for us. Amen.